Because faith comes through hearing the message of Christ, this sermon has been uploaded for you by Grace Unlimited, a ministry that functions out of Living Hope Church, Pretoria, South Africa. We want Jesus Christ to have first place in everything in our church. And we want to help you know and follow Jesus in all of life and to help others do the same. Find out more or download many more free sermons at graceunlimited.co.za or livinghopechurch.co.za. to church like this on what seems to be such an ordinary Sunday is really the work of God. I want to encourage the children who are sitting here today that coming to church with your parents is no small thing. You've got to thank the Lord for parents who want to come to church. You want to thank the Lord for exposing you to the church family and to His truth Sunday after Sunday. And so we don't want to waste this day. We don't want to waste this moment to hear from God. We don't want to waste this moment to encounter the living God. But we need His help. We desperately need His help. And so let us pray. Let's pray together as a church family now and ask God that He would speak to our hearts this morning. Father God, we thank You so much for allowing us to gather as Your people. We thank You for all the ways You have already stirred up our hearts to contemplate and evaluate what is it that we truly worship. Father, we do want to live lives that bring you glory. And we recognize there are so many things in this life that is fighting for that glory. And so we pray now as we come to study your holy word, through a difficult passage today, that you would shine the light of your truth into our hearts. That by your Spirit, you would convict us. By your Spirit, you will strengthen us and change us and show us where we need to turn. And then by your Spirit and your strength, help us to walk in obedience to walk in faith, being in love with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we ask you would help us to do that now as we come to study your word. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and open up to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, and we will be reading from verse 19. We come to, as I prayed, the difficult portion of Scripture today, and I want to give you a heads up that we're going to do a lot of work. This is a a lengthy message because there's a lot we need to get through, but I trust as we hang on by the grace of God that God would use this truth today to help us be more in worship of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let's read together now from Galatians chapter 5, and we'll read from verse 19. Now, Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We'll end there for today. Now before we continue with this message, the children can be dismissed, those who still need to go to children's ministries. And those who are staying in the service today, you are listening for the word flesh. 
You're listening for the word flesh. Try and count how many times we talk about the flesh. You see, one of the biggest problems that still faces the Christian church today is having people in the church who say that they are followers of Jesus and they claim to have the Holy Spirit within them, but they are still primarily and fundamentally controlled by the desires of their sinful flesh. There are people who say and think they trust in Christ, but their lives are pretty much still the same as before they came to know all about Him. They might even acknowledge that they're a sinner who gets things wrong sometimes, but because we all struggle with sin, it doesn't seem to be such a big priority for them to fight against it. Because is it really such a big deal if Jesus took care of our sin problem? You see, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at Paul's instruction about practical Christian living. About the road of sanctification and the reality of becoming more like Jesus Christ. And he has been saying that the true believer is someone that is walking by the Spirit. Because a true believer has been given the power of the Holy Spirit to approach life one step at a time. He also said that a true believer is someone that is led by the Spirit. Led into holiness in our daily battle against the desires of the flesh. Stressing that the Holy Spirit is sufficient for our sanctification. The flesh, we have said, is more than just our body. Because when we are talking about the flesh here in Galatians... Paul is talking about man's fallen, broken human nature that does not want to do what God wants us to do. And every single person in this room has a fallen human nature. But it's when Christ opens your eyes to whom you really are and you see His holiness and His glory and you turn to Him in faith and trust for the forgiveness that you need, You are set free from that old sinful fleshly nature because God gives you a new one. A new nature with new desires. Yet the problem today is some people in our Christian circles are still living under the ongoing control of their sinful fleshly desires. Even though they come occasionally to church, Even though they go to Bible studies, even though they do stuff to help others and serve others, and think that persisting in the deeds of the flesh isn't really such a big deal, because instead of turning from that sin, they just continue to do what feels good to them. And so the question that comes before us today is how can you know if you are walking by the Spirit or if you are walking by the flesh? How do you know if your life is controlled by the Spirit of God or if your life is controlled by your unredeemed human flesh? And what Paul is trying to say to us from the list that we read here in Galatians 5, 19-21 is that the works of the flesh are obvious. He's like, there's no real confusion here because the works of the flesh are evident. It's obvious. And then he goes on to explain what is so obvious by giving this long list of 15 examples of what the works of the flesh look like. Then he also gives this dramatic warning and a very sober reality check to show that to God, this is in fact a very big deal because the consequences come down to your eternal future in heaven or your eternal future in hell. Between living a life that brings glory to God or missing His glory altogether. Because to God, your holiness is important. Your becoming more like His Son, Jesus Christ, is important. The whole drama of redemption and the Bible makes that clear. And if we use the analogy from the Bible, then we can say that a tree is known by its fruit, right? 
A tree is known by its fruit. In this case, Paul says, the bad fruit of the flesh will show clearly in someone's life. In the same way that the good fruit will show because of the work of the Spirit in their lives. And we're going to get to the fruit of the Spirit in a few weeks. And so how can you know if you are living according to the flesh? Well, first Paul says it's going to be evident. Our first point for the day, living by the works of the flesh is obvious. We see that at the start of verse 19. Paul says, now the works of the flesh are evident. You see, part of Paul's overall argument to the Galatians has been to remind them that since we live after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who have trusted in Christ for salvation have been set free from the works of the flesh. And it's because Jesus has secured victory for us in the battle. Think about it of an actual war. An actual war. Our sinful flesh is like the army rebels who have been defeated in battle, but some of them are still lurking around in the dark corners of our lives. Because they have not all left the city of our heart. And their goal is they want to fight back and still attempt to take back control. And so they must be resisted at all times. However, the bigger picture, because of Jesus, the overall war has been won. Christians are marching and walking under the banner of victory that Christ has secured for them. And as we continue to engage in this war against the flesh, it might even cause some of us to stumble along the way. However... What Paul is saying now to the Galatians and to us today is that when someone is not walking by the Spirit, but continually living according to the deeds of the flesh, then that kind of life is going to be evident for all to see. It's the obvious life where Christ is not in charge because you think you are in charge. Because you're constantly taking matters into your own hands and constantly pursuing your own sinful desires. And suppose, like, it doesn't require you to have some sort of extraordinary spiritual discernment to identify the works of the flesh. Because it's obvious. Makes me think of that well-known children's story of the emperor who got new clothes. Maybe some of you remember the story growing up. This emperor was tricked by some of the sneaky tailors who claimed to have made him a suit. That was so beautiful and so glorious that it was something astonishing to behold. But when the emperor looked in the mirror, he could not see this new amazing clothes. All that he saw was himself standing there in his underwear. But he doesn't admit that he's not seeing these new clothes because the tailors keep praising him for how good he looks. And eventually he goes out like this into this big parade down the main road in town and the people react the same way as the emperor does, thinking that something must be wrong with them. Even though they can clearly see that the king doesn't have these clothes on, they are convinced they must just not be able to see it. But eventually there's this young boy who shouts out, Look, the emperor doesn't have any clothes on. And everyone bursts out in laughter. And I think part of what Paul is getting at here is that if we are willing to be honest and look at our lives and examine ourselves without being fooled, then we will see the obvious ways we might be living in the flesh. Because the deeds of the flesh might be hidden inside of man, but it's not going to be hidden for long, and it will display itself publicly for all to see. Because the reality is, this is the kind of life that we were all living before Jesus changed our world. But for some people, no change has really taken place. And they are still constantly living according to their own selfish, sinful desires. And Paul says, it's no mystery. Because living a life in the flesh that dishonors and displeases God is obvious. But then secondly, what exactly is so obvious? 
Our second point, what exactly is so obvious then? In other words, those who live according to the works of the flesh, this is what that kind of life looks like, because Paul now gives us a list. A list of sins that are ugly and detestable, and the results of being driven by evil, selfish desires. And this list is not the full and complete list of every selfish and sinful thing that we as people can do. How do we know that? Because at the end of the list, Paul says, and things like these. It's almost like if you picture Paul writing, and he's writing this list, he's gathering some momentum, and he starts to get some sort of pain or, or cramp in his hand, he has to drop his pen, and so he just has to stop and add, and things like these, because I'm sure Paul could have kept on going for a very long time. And this list is making the point that the works of the flesh are evil. And this is also not the only list of sins or deeds of the flesh that we know that God hates. There is in fact several other lists, and we'll touch on them as we consider this one. The Bible are full of them. But if you look at what Paul says, is evident. Then you must also ask yourself, why is he mentioning these specific sins here in Galatians? Because it's important to remember the context of Galatians as we consider what Paul is saying here. Because you can group this list into four different categories. If you look at this long list of sins, you can group them into four overall categories. The first few have to do with sexual sins, where he talks about sexual morality, impurity, and sensuality. The next with worship sins, religion and worship. Idolatry and sorcery. Then he gives a much longer list of relational sins. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. Which I think is intentional because of the context. And then he ends with a few sins of overindulgence, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Let's quickly consider each of these categories here to understand what the evident, obvious deeds of the flesh look like. First category, sexual sins. And the first one Paul mentions is sexual immorality. This is the word porneia, which we have talked about a lot before here, when we walked through the Old Testament and, and the, the Ten Commandments. And it carries with it the, the bigger umbrella of doing any kind of sexual activity that dishonors God. I mean, this is anything from watching porn, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, lust, and on and on and on. And if you look at other passages in the New Testament, you see that Paul also lists sexual immorality or porneia first in Ephesians 5.3 because of knowing what devastating effect these kinds of sins have, not just on you, but on all the people around you. The next word, impurity. Impurity. Talking about uncleanness. This is talking about your moral state before God. And is it not true that someone that entertains any kind of sexually immoral behavior feels dirty? Feels dirty. But the problem is if you don't deal with that dirtiness biblically, then you start to make yourself at home in the muddy, disgusting world of sexual immorality, and you become like a pig who loves to drench himself in the filth of sexually perverse things because you actually love it. You love it. Because the third word Paul uses here is sensuality. Sensuality. This is a word that also is also used all over the, the New Testament. And the idea is that there is this lack of restraint. In other words, this is someone that thinks he has a sexual license to satisfy himself in whatever way he wants. This is returning to your lust again and again. And you end up finding your identity in your sexual behavior. Maybe it's like scrolling through Facebook and there's this link that says, if you click here, you will find all the images to satisfy your sexual desires. 
And the more you try to avoid these links, the more you find yourself opening up the next one and the next one. And you can't seem to get enough of it. Instead of canceling your social media account or getting a phone without internet, you look for every opportunity you can to open up another perverse picture that will satisfy your fleshly desires. It's getting to the point where you just don't care what other people might think, let alone what God thinks, as long as you can satisfy those lusts. And you wonder, why is God so against this? It's because He's made a one flesh union that is blessed by Him, is to be enjoyed with Him, because it's a union that is empowered by the Spirit of God. You see, sexual intimacy is a beautiful thing until it loses its divine context. And someone that has become comfortable with the dirtiness of any kind of sexual perversion is someone that is walking according to the works of the flesh. It's someone that is in self-worship and seeks to satisfy any of these desires in any way possible, and they're okay with it. And perhaps that is why Paul then lists the following category of sins that have to do with what we worship. Worship sins. Worship sins. And the first one is idolatry. And so you can kind of group the next two sins together because they both focus on not wanting to worship the one true God of this universe exclusively. And let's be honest, one of the biggest idols people have today are sexual relationships. But we can all easily exalt stuff to a place where Jesus needs to be. Someone that is walking in the flesh is someone that makes it clear what they are worshipping. Romans 1 says it's worshipping the, the, creature, the, the, the creature rather than the creator. Colossians 3.5 says that this is coveting what other people have. It's sacrificing your time and energy to get what you want, not thinking or caring about the implications. It's freaking out at other people when they get close to your idol. It's making decisions without thinking about the effect it will have on your life and relationships because all you can think about is this idol. And we know that idolatry is a hard issue. Because people look at something other than God to give them what only God can give them. I think that is why Paul mentions sorcery as well. The next one, sorcery. Because sorcery or magic or going to the local village Sangroma is the practice of trying to manipulate circumstances or dark powers to get what you want instead of trusting God. The root word here actually gives us pharmakeia, which sounds like what? Pharmacy or pharmaceutical, right? You see, many ancient ceremonies involved using some sort of drug that allowed people to be able to communicate with other so-called deities or spirits. And eventually this became known as witchcraft. In fact, Deuteronomy 18.10 is not unknown to this. Because God's law says anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead... Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And so why is this a worship sin? Because it's not trusting God for what you need. Taking one pull after the other to change your circumstances is a failure to trust God. It's wanting to control the flesh and wanting to go to anyone or anything to get that control instead of submitting to your control to God. It's letting your feelings and emotions rule your life and not stopping until you get what you want. And someone that is walking in the flesh and participates in any of these sins on a habitual, continual basis has a clear wrong view of God. But then Paul shifts and talks about the next category of sins and we must see them in the right context because now he talks about relational sins. Relational sins. In other words, he's now talking about community destroying sins. 
A part of why there are so many listed in this category is because of the relational tension, I think, and the conflict that was going on with the people in Galatia. You remember back in chapter 5 verse 15, Paul said that they are, if they're not careful, they will be biting and devouring one another. And so I think that this is why Paul lists eight different yet somewhat similar relational sins as examples of what it looks like to be walking in the flesh. We have said before that a church that is not serving one another in love is going to be a church that destroys itself. And partly that happens because of all the conflict in the church. The conflict amongst the people in the church. And some of this ongoing unresolved conflict will be indicating that you are in fact walking in the flesh. Because the first one Paul mentions is enmity. This is this inner, deep, root level hatred towards someone or something. This is having hostile feelings and thoughts about other people. And if you hang around people who have this strong feelings and going on in their minds and in their hearts, you will typically hear them fighting with a lot of different people. In other words, many of the relationships they do have are marked by conflict. And when someone is in constant conflict with other people, they typically become experts at defending themselves and justifying why they have conflict with other people in the first place. Because obviously, they are not the ones responsible, right? It must be someone else. But a heart that is marked by a hateful attitude will then lead to strife. The next word is strife. This is having a temper that is out of control. Paul uses the same word in Romans 1 when talking about the unbeliever, saying that a clear mark of someone that opposes God is someone that is full of envy, murder, strife. Strife. This bitter hatred you have causes you to fight with other people. We don't have control over your anger because you have been brewing on this sinful, hateful attitude toward them. And this is the kind of sin that destroys relationships, where people have the attitude that they don't want to have anything to do with someone else anymore. Even someone in the church. Because instead of seeking peace and restoration in your conflict, there's this constant quarreling and fighting. And so Paul brings in the next word, which is jealousy. This is also connected to strife because instead of wanting to help other people, you want to harm them. Why? Because all you can care about is wanting your own personal advancement. This is someone that's enthusiastic, but they're only enthusiastic about themselves. And it's getting so angry at other people because they, you see them as standing in the way of what you really want. And the root word for jealousy is zeal. as being zealous for yourself instead of being zealous for God. And often where there's this deep, hateful, jealous attitude towards someone else, there's going to be an outburst of anger. Or as Paul says, fits of anger. The next word, fits of anger. Someone that is walking in the flesh often thinks that their anger is actually a righteous anger. They think that venting about their issues is a good thing. That it's good to blow off a little steam now and again. But Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. People that are like a ticking time bomb are a bad influence and eventually detonate and they blow up relationships. Proverbs 29.22 A man of wrath stirs up strife and one given to anger causes much transgression. And if people are avoiding you because they are afraid of that you might lose it, then you make it clear, you make it obvious that you are walking in the flesh. Because Proverbs 22.24 says Make no friendship with a man given to anger. Nor go with a wrathful man lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. 
So I think one of the sad realities of angry people are that they don't typically have a lot of friends. They don't have a lot of friends. Because relationships that are full of anger and conflict are also full of disputes. Which is the next word of the, of the flesh that Paul uses here, rivalry or disputes. Other translations use the word selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. Because what is at the heart of a lot of fighting and disputes? Well, James 3.14 says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above. But it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So what is James saying? He's saying that selfish ambition is evil and demonic. Why? Because it goes against everything that God is and does and has done for you. In other places in the Bible, Paul says that some even use the the pulpit with this fleshly attitude and make it clear that their rivalry with others is not rooted in the gospel, but in advancing their own ideas and agendas. And this kind of people cause division in the church. Which is Paul's next word in the list. Dissension is the same as division. And as elders, we have been reflecting on the effect people like this can have in the church. People who cause division in the body. People who are intentional about stirring up conflict. And to the Romans, Paul said, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause division among you, who create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Avoid them. Because they end up causing factions. Next work of the flesh is causing factions. This is someone that is forcing people to take sides. This divisive person creates factions or groups within the body and they seek to generate their own following. And instead of pursuing unity in the body, they make it clear they are walking in the flesh because they have no problem when there are different camps in the church. They have no problem if there are cliques in the church. You kind of see how some of this was playing out in the church in Corinth and 1 Corinthians eleven nineteen, where there are different factions or groups in the church who did different things when it came to the Lord's table and communion. And God opposes this kind of disunity. Because of the work Christ has achieved, the redemptive work of Christ to unite all people in Him. But then the final category or word that He uses in this category of community destroying sins is when you are full of envy envy Titus 3 says for we ourselves were once foolish disobedient led astray slaves to various passions and pleasures passing our days in malice and envy When you are thinking and talking about what other people have and you keep dreaming about how happy you might be if you had what they had, then you are not only not enjoying what God has given you, but you become indifferent toward that other person. Your flesh is constantly looking to have what they have, even at the cost of the relationship. And so we can clearly see all of these sins break down relationships. You can be a church wrecker if you're walking in the flesh and if your desires are for yourself and not for the good of others. And you're opposing God when these sins cause you to do damage to the church. Because in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul wrote and said that, verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy And you are that temple. Not talking about a building. He's talking about a people. 
The true children of God are so loved by God that He says He will destroy those who touch the apple of His eye. But then He says in verse 18, Let no one deceive himself. Let no one deceive himself. And if there was one area where people were deceiving themselves in Paul's day, just as much as people are deceiving themselves today, then it might be this final category of Paul's list. We talk about the sins of indulgence or excess. And he specifically mentions drunkenness and orgies and things like these. Now when it comes to alcohol in the Bible, we actually see that it says that wine is a gift from God. Psalm 104, the psalmist is in this beautiful moment of praise and he says in verse 14, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for a man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. But even though whole wine and liquor industries have been built on Timothy's stomach, 1 Timothy 5.23, what the Bible makes very, very clear is that getting drunk is a sin. It's not hard to look at a drunk person and wonder if this is the work of the flesh. Wine is a gift that is not to be abused. Ephesians 5.18 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But then what be what instead, he says? But be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And so if you're asking questions like, how drunk do you have to be to be drunk? Or how many drinks can I have if I still feel fine? Then you're asking the wrong questions on you are being led by your fleshly desires. I mean, just look at Proverbs 23, 29 with me, because here God describes the negative effects when someone is drinking too much. I mean, the writer asks, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? And then he gives the answer, verse 30. Those who tarry long over wine, those who go to try mixed wine, do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. In other words, people who drink too much, their troubles don't go away, they actually multiply. They multiply. People get into fights and arguments and they can't even remember why. They have bloodshot eyes and they show to everyone their lack of self-control. And the problem is in our culture today, we make jokes about drinking too much. Do you know what? The Bible, no one is laughing. In the Bible, no one is laughing. Romans 14 does give us wisdom of moderation, but for some people, just because you have liberty and freedom in Christ, doesn't mean you should use it. Because like many other sins of the flesh, excessive drinking is feeding the flesh, and all at once is more and more and more and not less. And this goes hand in hand with the last work of the flesh and Paul's ugly list of sins, which he says is orgies, or other translations talk about carousing, carousing. Now, carousing can be translated as a wild party lifestyle, a wild party lifestyle. And so if you're wondering, where does the Bible say it's not God glorifying to be a party animal, then here it is. Because what goes along with the party lifestyle is indulging in many of all these sins that Paul has already mentioned. In fact, in Paul's day, the rich people would come together and they would have these big parties. And it was such a common thing that the people would have these special places built in their homes where people can go and vomit because of indulging in too much drinking and eating. And the problem for many of us today is thinking that if I am attending parties like these, but I'm not participating in these things, then I will be okay. Because somehow you think you, you're there because you're the Christian witness in that moment. 
But I want to warn you, it would be foolish to think that you can sit on the fringes of this kind of fleshly, self-worshipping, God-ignoring parties and think that you won't get drawn into it. You see, those who give themselves over to these wild parties and excessive abuse of what God has given us to enjoy, demonstrate that they are still under the control of the old Adam. Rather than living and the power and presence of Jesus Christ. In First Peter chapter 4, he describes that this kind of life is what people used to be like. He says, for the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. You know what? Someone that is walking by the Spirit is able to walk away from all of that, even if it means they will lose some relationships by walking away. Verse 4. With respect to this, they are surprised when, they, when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. See, in the same way Peter gave this warning about God's judgment, Paul does the similar thing here in verse 21. Because not only are the deeds of the flesh obvious, God's judgment will also be obvious. Point number three, because there will be consequences if you don't turn from what is obvious. There will be consequences if you don't turn from what is obvious. Paul writes, I warn you as I have warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You see, as I said in the beginning, too many people think that they can continue living according to their fleshly desires and still go to heaven. And what happens is that people buy into the idea that God will accept me regardless of how I'm living my life. However, here in Galatians 5.21, as in 1 Corinthians 6.9, the Bible clearly says that if you persist in living in the flesh, then you will not be part of God's kingdom. You are making it clear that you are not part of God's kingdom. But now as we come to evaluate our lives against God's truth in a, in a list like this today, some might even come to the realization that you are guilty not just of one, but of several of these fleshly sins. And the reality is no Christian can claim that he or she has never fallen in one of these areas, even after they have placed their full trust in Christ. And so then who can be allowed into the, the kingdom of God if, if any one of these sins keeps you out? I mean, the ESV translation says those who do such things, but the better translation is actually those who practice such things. Those who practice such things. Which means if you continually, habitually live in sin, like a fish that is stuck in the pond of its own waste, and that has become the normal pattern of your life, then the kingdom of God is not for you. Spurgeon says, all who commit any of the sins in the long black catalog are sowing to the flesh and not to the Spirit. When a man sows to the flesh, what will the harvest be? He will reap corruption, rottenness, and death. The sin that the sinner thought was sweet and honey turns bitter as gall to him. There are many men and women in this world who lived in sin until it has become its own punishment. And if it is not so in this world, it will be so in the world to come. Paul said that he has warned the Galatians about this kind of living before, most likely when he came preaching to them about the kingdom of God on his first missionary journey. Because the normal part of his message was and is that God delivers people from this kind of life. And so you ask yourself, how serious is God about me turning from this kind of living? 
And you see the seriousness with this warning that if you don't turn from this kind of sinful life in the flesh, then you will not be part of God's kingdom. But another way we see how much God hates this sin is when you look at what you are turning to. You're turning to the cross where God has poured out His hatred for your selfish, dirty, indulging, fleshy way of living on His Son. Where God punishes His own Son as someone that was sexually immoral, as someone that was the idolater, as someone that was hating others and in conflict with others, and someone that had no self-control. And He did all that so that you can be part of the kingdom of God. So you can't say you love Jesus and live as someone that hates his church because a Christian is someone that is not someone that persists in his flesh, he sins. He is someone that persists in repenting from those sins. Because the cross... And Calvary supplies to us the most awe-inspiring display of God's hatred towards sin. And if you have a low view of sin and salvation, then no wonder you find yourself habitually practicing the sins of the flesh. But those who have a high view of salvation will be led by the Spirit into repentance because a Christian doesn't persist in sin. He repents of sin. But then the question is, how do I know if I've really repented of my fleshly sin? How do I know if I've truly repented of my sin? Well, I want you to turn with me quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Just as much as we see the fruit of the flesh in the section of Galatians, Paul wrote to the Corinthians to explain the difference between a worldly repentance and a godly repentance. Because you will see the fruit of godly repentance when someone has truly been broken over their sin. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. See, a bit of the context is that Paul has sent a harsh letter to the Corinthians by Titus. And we don't have that letter in the Bible. And he wrote that letter to address the sin of the people in the church. And the church was grieved by that letter. Because Paul was confronting people he loves who are stuck in unrepentant sin. And he felt even this emotional tension of somewhat regretting what he had done in this harsh letter. And what he has written. However, his theology kicked in and he realized that this was the right thing to do. Because the most loving thing you can do with someone that is stuck in sin is to help them see that they're stuck in sin. Which means the opposite is also true. The most hateful thing you can do is to leave them in their sin and allow them to continue in that sin. See, and true repentance leads to a brokenness and a sorrow over that sin. And so Paul says you have to see the difference. There's a difference between feeling guilty and not changing and trying to cover up your sin and feeling broken and doing whatever is needed to turn from that sin. A worldly sorrow, Paul says, leads to death. Where a godly sorrow leads to salvation. And the difference is the difference between heaven and hell. All of us have a guilty conscience. And the thing with worldly sorrow is, it just some, it's someone that tries to cover up their sin because they don't want to face the consequences if that sin was exposed. I mean, people get concerned about what would happen if to them if my sin was in the light. But they don't ask, what is this doing to God? Because if you can get away with it, then it's not that big a deal and we can simply go back to it. 
If you can get away with your sin, you will go right back to that sin. That's a worldly grief that just temporarily feels guilty, but does not see how the sin diminishes the glory of God. So true repentance is the opposite. Godly sorrow that leads to salvation comes when we grieve over our sin because we realize that our sin grieves God. Our sin grieves God. It's crying out like King David against you and you alone have I sinned and done what is evil. And we know that we will sin and that our flesh is weak, but does that truly grieve you? Does that truly grieve you? Do you see that it truly grieves God? Because if you truly do, then it will also be evident in your life. Because look at verse 11. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 11. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, Paul says. But also what eagerness to clear yourselves. What indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. Paul is praising God because the people in Corinth have repented. They have truly repented. And what does that true turning from sin look like? If you want to know what true biblical repentance looks like, then we see the fruit of repentance here. And the first thing you see is this earnestness. Earnestness. After being confronted with the reality of their sin, the Corinthians wanted to restore the relationship with Paul and with Jesus. Because if a relationship is broken and there's conflict, then true repentance leads to a sensitivity where all you want to do is fix that relationship. You are not content to leave the relationship as it is. It's wanting to ask for forgiveness and extend forgiveness so that the relationship can be restored. Next you see there's a desire for vindication. Because true repentance leads to an eagerness to clear your name and distance yourself from that sin. See, where the Corinthians were known for their sin, they now wanted to be known for their repentance. They wanted to clear their name, and instead of swimming in their fleshy desires, they wanted to swim in the grace and mercy and the forgiveness of God. Next, Paul saw in their life indignation. The strong displeasure or hatred over your sin. This is having a settled disposition of anger toward your sin. This is not becoming comfortable with your sin. It's not giving the devil the opportunity in your life to cause you to love your sin. This is putting to death and starving your sin and doing whatever it takes possible to destroy it in your life. Then Paul says there's a holy fear. A fear. This is being in awe of God's holiness that produces a fear in you that causes you to hate your sin even more. A fear that is willing to bring your sin to the light. A fear that understands that the holiness of God causes me to fall to my knees and cry out for mercy. And fifthly, there's this longing for fellowship. A longing to be in the presence of God. To live your life in the presence and power of God. A longing to enjoy sweet fellowship with God. Because true repentance helps us see that God is waiting for us with open arms, ready to embrace us. Worldly repentance avoids God. Because where sin enters your life, your time with God goes away, doesn't it? True repentance doesn't run away from God. It longs to be back with God. Because six, there's a zeal. A zeal. And it's not a zeal for what we said for ourselves. This is a zeal for holiness. This is a zeal to be in the house of God, Psalm 69.9. A love for what God loves and a hate for what God hates. And the more time you spend with God through His Word, the more you start to hate these fleshly, worldly desires. 
And then finally, there is finding restitution for your sin. And the ESV says, with punishment. In other words, a truly repentant person does not defend himself. True biblical repentance is not explaining, I am sorry, and then you add the but. It's owning your sin. It's a Zacchaeus kind of repentance where you seek to make right the things, even if you must pay four times the amount to make it right. Because true, godly repentance shows itself in action. There's fruit of it in your life. And so as you look at your life and you see the ways in which you might be walking in the flesh, are you truly grieving over that sin? Is there an earnestness to fix your broken relationships? Is there an eagerness to clear your name? Is there a hatred toward that sin? Is there a fear of God? Is there a longing to be in fellowship with Him? Is there a zeal for what is holy? And are you owning your sin? Are you willing to suffer to make things right? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave you His life so He can make things right between you and God. And that is why in 1 John 1 verse 5, John writes, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with the one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. However, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To cleanse us from any one of these sins in this list. And so the solution to living a life in the flesh and turning is genuine repentance and faith to Jesus Christ. To have a godly grief that leads to salvation. Turning to the one that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Because we don't deceive ourselves thinking that sin is not such a big deal. But we own it. We turn from it. And we turn to Christ. Because He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for shining the truth of your word into our hearts this morning again. To help us evaluate in which ways we might be walking in the flesh. Father, we want to turn from those ways. We want to turn in genuine repentance. Help us, Lord, through your spirit and press on our hearts a godly grief and a hatred towards this sin. Help us see that at the other end there's this, this amazing God that is waiting for us with open arms. A God that laid down His own life to take pigs like us who play around in the, in the mud of sin. That raises us with Christ and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That make dirty people like us clean. And so Father, help us to feel the weight of our sin. Help us to feel the weight of your holiness. And then help us to walk in that holiness. Help us to distance ourselves from those sins. Help us to go and be willing to do whatever it takes to fix the relationships we have with other people in the church.
Help us not to be content with taking one more step in the flesh. And help us to hold on to the truth knowing that where sin runs deep, your grace runs even deeper. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.